If you have your scriptures, open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We are going to be looking at the life of Hannah tonight, and I am so thrilled to dive into the story a little deeper. She is one of my favorite uh, women in the scripture, a woman that I think embodies faith and that really shows us the example of what desperate, passionate, fervent prayers really look like. Hannah and her life um, are really stories of deferred hopes and dashed dreams and discouragements. Um, I don't know if you can relate to that, but I know I can. There isn't um, a season in life that doesn't typically have one of those things involved in it. I think we've all experienced the idea of a deferred hope, of something that we're waiting for that has yet to come to fruition. I think there's definitely times in my life, I know for sure, in my husband's life, and I'm sure yours, where dreams have been dashed um, and just haven't been kind of up to the par that you were expecting. And maybe we're just entirely um, crashed and burned and kind of in front of you. And And maybe you're on the discouragement spectrum where you've just got some negativity around you, whether it's family members or coworkers, just naysayers, as the scripture calls them, um, discouragers of a dream, discouragers of the way you live and the way you believe and the way you um, pray and how you walk through life. Um, Maybe you're just getting persecuted. And that over time leads to a bitterness of soul. It's painful. It's, it's tough. And Hannah, as we're going to look at tonight, was in quite a predicament that she could not get out of. And it was year upon year upon year of pain and suffering and persecution and tension and questioning and tears. And maybe you have a season like that in your life. Um, and if you are, I would encourage you that this story isn't just thousands of years old but it is just as relevant and applicable today as it was for Hannah. And the principles hold true. The person that we are talking about within the lines of the story is Jesus Christ, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yes, this story opens up with these deferred hopes and discouragement, but it gives way eventually um, to desperation and then deliverance and a desire that is fulfilled. And so I just want to pray that over you, too, that your story and whatever chapter you're in, as you persevere and you take it to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving and fervency, that you, too, would see your desperation give way to deliverance and ultimately to desires fulfilled. A couple things. Hannah um, was known for a few different roles. And if you're a woman listening to this, you probably wear a lot of different hats. A lot of women do, men do as well. Um, But Hannah was a a wife. Uh, She was a sister wife, if you want to call it that. Um, Her husband had another wife, so she was related to this lady in a way. Uh, She did eventually become a mother, um, which we're going to talk about, but ultimately she calls herself something in this passage that how in tune she is to her own identity. She calls herself a maidservant of God multiple times in the chapter, Uh, more than a wife, more than a soon-to-be mother, more than a a victim of Paniah, as we're later going to see. She calls herself a maidservant. And I don't know how life has tried to label you 
or circumstances have tried to define you. But again, I would encourage you as you read this story again for maybe the first time, maybe it's familiar, that you would really begin to identify yourself properly and with the most value, which is a maidservant of the Lord, one whom the Lord sees, one in whose service um, is due to the Father above any other role you wear, above what you do or how much money you make or who you're married to or how many children you have or don't have. Your identity and how you see yourself has got to first stem from your walk with God. What does that look like? Would you call yourself a maidservant of God the way Hannah did? I love that she really identifies herself that way. Second thing about Hannah is the meaning of her name. It's really important to understand and Maybe you know the meaning of your name. I know the meaning of my name. Um, I remember asking it multiple times when I was growing up because I loved my dad telling me the story of how Sarah in the Hebrew means princess. What little girl doesn't love that? So I cherish my name. I cherish the meaning of my name. I was obviously named after Sarah, Abraham's wife, and just the whole story of Sarah and Abraham has been dear to my heart. Um, over many years as I have come to appreciate the legacy and the history of the name Sarah. So if you don't know your name's meaning, I would encourage you to find that out. And if it's a biblical name, especially go deeper into that story in the Bible, because I think it can really encourage you and reveal some things potentially about yourself. So here, Hannah means grace and favor. And I would encourage you as we read this, every time you see those two words or you see the, um, the inference of those words, if you will, star it, circle it, make a note, because it's really important. Um, Hannah had a meaning, but sometimes we don't always feel um, what is true. Her name meant grace and favor, and that was true. But do you think she felt that? I mean, you can't read very far into the story of 1 Samuel chapter 1 and begin to gather very quickly how Hannah is feeling this from graced by God or favored by men. She is desperate and alone and just persecuted and taunted, really. Um, Is that true of you? Are there things spoken over your life that are true? But you don't feel and you don't believe based on your feeling. We're going to watch how Hannah's response moves from feeling and sight and what she's hoping to happen to reality. And that reality giving her peace regardless of what she feels or regardless of what the circumstances are around her. Um, Hannah is definitely not a woman (laughs) that is a novice at pain or at prayer. She's pretty versed in both of those categories. And I would even venture to say that a woman of prayer is extremely familiar with pain. A woman of prayer is a woman of pain because they go hand in hand. They're somewhat married together. Where there there is great pain, there is most likely going to be very deep prayers. And so I've, I've kind of entitled this message, Desperate Measures Call for Deeper Prayers, because that's exactly the truth. And we don't only see that in the story of Hannah. 
We see that all throughout the scripture, really, that things give way and the bottom falls out from underneath people and it looks impossible and the odds are incredibly great and the ante is raised and the enemy is massive. All of these impossibilities build upon build for each different character to the point where desperation is just the only option. They don't have any other way. They don't have any other out. And it's designed that way. Desperation is a part of God's design because it leads us into this depth of prayer and depth of need for God to show up who he is and who he's always been and who he will be. When we have it together and when we think we can handle it, we handle it. And we don't see God show up in strength and in power that he is so readily available to do. So desperate measures are somewhat of a prerequisite, if you will, to deeper prayers. And the deeper those prayers are in fervency and passion and faith, the greater the deliverance, (laughs) the greater the the answer, so to speak, that you're going to get to see in your life. And um, we see that here in Hannah. So if you haven't familiarized yourself with the story, um, it's one of feeling deep, asking specific. And we're really going to target 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 18, and then 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 11. And I'm not going to read it all for you out loud here, but I'm going to make a couple different um, kind of nuggets, and then we're going to talk about a few key points, five key points in particular that we can pull from this passage. Let me just give you a little bit of context um, about Hannah. Hannah's married to Elkanah, who was really seen as a godly man in that day. Um, we see that verified really in uh, the first three verses, verse three in particular, that he goes to Shiloh where the temple is, where Eli is the high priest with his sons every year. Elkanah is extremely obedient to God. He's extremely religious. He does his duties, so to speak, and he goes every year, offers his sacrifices, takes care of his wives, so on and so forth. Now, the interesting thing, and there's a bit of a caveat here, is that, yes, he was religious. However, he was involved in polygamy. He had given way to some degree to the culture of the day. And there was a lot of that. I mean, some of the forefathers of our faith, um, Abraham included, and Jacob, and some other ones entered into uh, the culture's way of doing things when it came to marriage, unfortunately. And we do not see the scripture condoning that and, and applauding it. Uh, we see it talked about. It, it happened. Um, but we also see the scripture kind of laying out the consequences of that. There are consequences when we do not follow the design that God intended for any area of our life, whether it's marriage or finances or children or our physical bodies, God lays those foundations to really give us the greatest amount of freedom, not to limit them and not to limit our freedom. And what we see here is this perpetual argument between these two wives that would be null and void if Elkanah had, you know, deviated from the culture and gone the way of God. But he didn't. And so the story starts out with this polygamous marriage between Elkanah, Paniah, and Hannah. And the two women are just extremely opposite. They are at odds with each other. 
Uh, Panaya is definitely the taunter. She is the, the um, ind- uh, what do you call it, indicator or initiator, rather, of this tension. And she's just a rival. Uh, maybe it's fueled by jealousy because the scripture goes on to say that Hannah was loved by Elkanah at, regarding Elkanah's love for Paniah. Paniah had children. Hannah didn't. And that's somewhat of the, the underlying problem that opens up this chapter is that Paniah had children. Hannah didn't. And if you're a woman, you're very familiar with the enemy of comparison. And there was a constant competition and comparison between these two women living under the same roof, needless to say. I mean, it's very painful um, when you can't have children and everybody around you is. It's even more painful when you are living with someone who is married to your husband, who is, quote unquote, pulling her weight and having children and creating legacy and you are infertile. And so that's the problem, really, that's, that's underlying here. It's the tension point that we open up with in, in this first chapter of 1 Samuel. The other thing that we really notice here in the beginning is um, Elkanah's favoritism. And notice that word favoritism. It's the meaning of Hannah. And he clearly calls her out as favorite. He gives her double portions of the sacrificed meat Um and potentially that fueled the argument in Paniah even further. It made her even more jealous. All she wants is the love of her husband, Elkanah. And all Elkanah wants is the love and the, re- the recipient attitude of Hannah. And all Hannah wants is a child. So it's this unbelievable game of cat and mouse, meaning that nobody really gets what they want here in the first few verses. They're all just at odds and a bit tormented in their spirit. Um, Paniah was angry and, and just persecuting in, in her personality. I mean, she's one of those people that loves conflict. And you may know some people like that. I am not one of them. I hate it. I cannot stand conflict, though it makes you a good communicator and it's a part of life and you have to learn how to resolve and work through it. I just don't love it. And there are people who genuinely love conflict. And maybe you're one of them. <laughs> but Paniah definitely was. She looked for it. She baited Hannah with it and would never let up. And it says in verse 7 that it happened year after year that Hannah would go up with her husband to the temple, that Paniah would provoke her to the point of tears, would purposefully irritate her and provoke her potentially saying things like I have kids you don't you know I I have something to offer you don't I'm performing you're failing in that day she was saying believe me she was saying it and it was extremely painful um, to the degree that Hannah really stopped eating she began to have a massive self-image problem and um, and potentially just fasted you know, unintentionally, her appetite just left because of the conflict. And um, there have been a very few occasions in my life, thank the Lord, but the couple of them that, that I did have a pretty significant conflict with someone that I deeply cared for, I just couldn't eat. I, I had lost my, my ability to really function. It steals your thoughts. It steals your appetites. It steals your sleep. 
um, when you're at odds with someone all the time and they are constantly uh, making it difficult for you to live. And that was the case here. The other thing that I, I find very interesting is that it wasn't Hannah's fault. Hannah was not infertile and her womb was not closed because of something she did or didn't do. It says very clear in verse 5, the Lord had closed her womb. Meaning right here from the beginning, we see this tumultuous environment, but we see God's sovereignty right in the middle of it. God had closed her womb. Why? She didn't know. But she just knew God has done this. And it says it twice that Lord had closed her womb. And so she was really the brunt of spiritual persecution and, you know, doing the will of the Lord and stepping towards everything that was right and honoring the God of Israel. She was very honoring in her wife roles to Elkanah. She, she didn't do anything wrong to get into this predicament. She just found herself there because God had placed her there. And that might be true of where you are. I think there's two different scenarios here. And the one we're talking about tonight with Hannah is one that is no fault of your own. Now, sin has consequence and you can step out of God's design and out of his will and be in a tumultuous environment because of that decision. That is not the case here. The case here is that Hannah, for all practical purposes, is righteous She's doing the right thing. She's going to the temple with her husband. She's sacrificing to Jehovah, to the God of Israel. She's doing her prayers, you know, a, a, atoning for her sins, so to speak, doing everything right, and yet can't do she so wishes she could do well, have children. And in that culture, it was just paramount. If you could not have children, you were an utter failure. You could not give your part, really, to society, to legacy. And Hannah was bearing the weight of that. Um, I think in our culture, maybe that's marriage. You know, for some people, man, if they can't get married, they just feel like they are out of the game. Maybe for others, it is parenting. It is getting pregnant. And I don't know, you know, we have a lot of listeners to this podcast and maybe you're infertile maybe you've battled with that for years and you can't get pregnant and you know that you would desire that and that you would probably even say god would desire that but it has been a year after year after year battle then you can really relate to hannah and she can relate to you but i want you to hear tonight in this story that god is just as much in the middle of the story as the pain is. He is not absent. He is not unaware. He is not flippant with her issue of pain. He is very purposed and intentional about it. He knew all along what son she was going to be given. And he knew who Samuel was going to be. God has a purpose always in and through our pain regardless of what we see or feel. So take note of that in your scripture um, and circle that the Lord had closed her womb twice. So let's jump into what, um, what Hannah began to do. 
verse 8, I want to start with Elkanah's comment. Elkanah, her husband, um, basically is trying to comfort his wife. And we know that God love them. They don't always get it right. And poor Elkanah, he just totally fails here. He is doing the best he can, and um, it's not really received. He says, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than 10,000 sons? So basically, Elkanah is now taking it personally. He's not really feeling her love. He's favored her, given her extra meat, taken care of her abundantly. She can't receive it because she's having this battle going on with the Lord. He's doing the best he can to comfort her and asking her questions, which husbands take note. To comfort your wife, do not ask her questions. That does not go well. Um, He is basically asking her, why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? Like, come on, let's get over this. You know, why are you so sad? move on with your life. You aren't I? And so he starts kind of making it about him for a second and so on and so forth. And we just see Hannah remain very quiet. According to the scripture, it doesn't really go much into her response here, which I think is, is important because really what Hannah does with her pain is she takes it to the Lord. And I think there's beautiful times where you can confide in your best friends. You can confide in your husband, in your community, but more often times than not, we confide only in them and we leave the Lord to the last one. And he is the only one that can do anything about our problem. And so Hannah doesn't really let Elkanah in fully to the depth of her hurt. He can't understand it as much as he wishes he could, as much as he wishes he could fix it and take it away. He can't. This is something between her and the father. And I think to some degree she knew that. And she just began to take it to the Lord and gain comfort from him. So let's see what she did. In verse 9, Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting at the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she, greatly distressed, which literally is translated bitter of soul, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. If you have never prayed to God in your pillow and made it wet with your tears, then I would encourage you to do that. Prayer does not always have to be so stately and organized. Sometimes prayer is just a mess. It is desperate. You are crying out your soul before the Lord. And I have done that multiple times throughout my life. In fact, the Psalms even talks about making your bed wet with tears, aching so deep, believing so hard, wanting something so badly, and praying for that very thing so deeply that tears really are the only language. We see this type of prayer with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he is sweating and crying out tears and and blood almost. It's just coming from the very depths of who he is. That's the kind of prayer that we are seeing here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. This is not a prayer over dinner. This is not a Lord bless my day and keep me safe prayer. Those aren't necessarily bad prayers. You know, I, I don't 
know if there's a version of good or bad. I do think this taps into the depth of heart. What is your heart like when you're praying? Is it fully engaged? Is it really asking God to be God in all those circumstances, whether it is over the meal or whether it's over your womb? And Hannah is fervently crying out to God, and I deeply admire it, and I love it, and I want my prayer life to emulate that. She made a vow in verse 11 and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thy maidservant and remember me, and not forget thy maidservant, but will give thy maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she was continued, as she continued praying before the Lord, notice it wasn't a start and stop. She was there for a while. It was a continuation that Eli, the priest, noticed her. He began watching her mouth. And in verse 13, it says, as for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. So if this is an insult upon injury, I don't know what is, because now the priest is going to accuse her of drinking and persecute her even further. Um, And he basically says in verse 14, how long have you made yourself drunk? Put away your wine. Finally, Hannah gets a bit of a backbone and says in verse 15, no, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Eli took a step back, I think, had to maybe eat some of his words, and he answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant your, your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So I think here in this exchange, we see the religious order, that everything was in a box. Everything was a bit formulaic here with Eli at the temple. And we see a very out-of-the-box, unsystematic, hard-to-characterize response to God in Hannah. And I don't think Eli really knows what to do with it. And of all things, Eli the priest, you would think, would have an incredible connection to God, would have an incredible prayer life would understand his need and dependency on this God that he was serving his, his days out in the temple for. And he was a bit clueless. And all of a sudden he sees this woman who had been doing her religious duty and coming year after year and bringing their sacrifices and was a good wife. And he all of a sudden sees her get undignified before God in the best of ways in personal manner, not just in a, this is the correct thing to do politically, this is what we Jews do in Israel, and this is the, you know, religious thing to do. No, 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 no. All of that went away. 
she all of a sudden said, get rid of the trappings. I don't care. I don't care really about doing everything right and coming to the temple. I need to encounter the Lord of hosts now. I need him to come to action on my behalf. Religion's not going to save me. Religion's not going to open my womb. I've been doing everything right. I need to talk to God personally. And I think it blew Eli away. And deep down, I think he ultimately really respected it. Little did he know, the very woman that he was mocking and to some degree, you know, accusing and persecuting would give birth to the answer of that prayer, whom he would raise as his own son. Eli really was the one who raised Samuel in the temple. It's amazing how full circle this story really is. And I think he, you know, he took back his words there when he realized, I've never seen prayer like this. I've never seen desperation like this. And surely God has heard this woman. Maybe even more than he was confident God had heard him. So let's look at five different things from this this passage. Um, They're all going to start with A, of course me and my nerdy love of words. Um, The first one is right out of the, the start, right from the gate, we see that there is an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty over suffering. This is throughout the scripture. Suffering is a tool in God's hand. It is part of his plan, his own son, was not spared suffering, how much more then should we think we would be? And this infertility here as the the problem, that's part of God's plan. I don't know what your problem is. I don't know what your suffering is, but God does. And not only does he know it, he's right in the middle of it and has potentially allowed it for your good and his glory to bring you to your need and to get your attention and for him to show up and meet that need and give himself glory. You see, suffering has always been a part of God's design. It's always been a part of God's plan. It has been one of the ways, and I would even say, that he increases our need of him and displays his own strength for us. You see, God doesn't want just our sacrifices and our service. He wants our relationship. He wants our need. He wants our trust. He wants our love. And when we think we've got everything in a box under control, completely handled, we don't really need him. And so he takes a back seat. And all of a sudden, a storm comes and a suffering comes and one of two things happens. We either blame God and run away, or we dive deeper into God, realize that he has been in control all along. He is completely sovereign, despite what we can understand or not understand. And we actually grow in our dependency on God, and therefore the depth of our relationship with him. And that's what we see here with Hannah. We see that in the, in the passage, it just screams off the page to me that the Lord had closed her womb. Job is very familiar with this principle. Job chapter 1, verse 20 through 21, it's one of my favorite little sections of verses. It says, 
Naked from the womb I came, and naked I will go. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. From the same hand comes adversity and blessing. Should we accept one and not the other? You see, we want to put God in a box sometimes, and we want to characterize suffering and pain as out of design, out of the plan. And like I said earlier, there is some pain and suffering attached to sin that's needless, that, that could have been averted, okay? But I'm talking about this, the suffering and the brokenness and the pain in our Christian life that is allowed by God, potentially it's persecution from people or whatever it is, but it's allowed by God in order for us to grow deeper in our love of him and our need of him. I think the other thing to understand here is that the scripture is also clear that the, the Satan, the enemy, is the ruler of the air. He is the prince of the air. It talks about that in John chapter 12, verse 31. But listen, just because he is the ruler of the air doesn't mean he's the runner of everything. He is sovereignly limited under God's control. So turn on the news. I mean, look at the era we're living in. We are living in, there are Christians being murdered. There are awful things happening. There is terrorism in the world that seems to be inching closer. This place is under a curse, if you will. And, and the enemy does, to some degree, have the ability to attack and run amok in different areas of life. However, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And he who is in the world is on a limited leash. His activities do not dethrone God, nor do they surprise God. God is sovereignly in control, always has been, is currently, and always will be. And he's over the area of control and suffering too. He's over cancer. He's over infertility. He's over deep, deep relational hurts. He's over dysfunctional families. He is in control. And I know that it doesn't take away the ache that some of those things cause and potentially have in your life. And you may not fully be able to explain it. I know I can't. But the what I do know is that nothing in this life, no matter how bad, can steal the control from the God who set everything into motion. And nothing that happens that's so good can trump the fact that he is the best, that he is on the throne. Good or bad, God is in control. And there is a liberty and a peace that comes from really believing that, not just theologically saying it, but believing it in the depth of your being. And there are things in my family and things in my life that I can't totally explain with my finite brain because they do require faith. And faith is set into motion here 
as we acknowledge that God is sovereign over suffering. There isn't a lot of rationale involved in that. My, my parents, I mean, my family, we've experienced cancer. We know what it's like to have a death sentence on my very dad. And by God's grace, we also know what it's like to be living the miracle. But we know God doesn't heal everybody. We know that there is deep, deep areas of confusion and, and hurt that God is in control and nothing has dethroned him. If you're taking notes, I'd write down Psalm 34, 19, Philippians 1, 29, Revelation 2, 10, Deuteronomy 32, 39. These are all different verses that really kind of say what I'm saying in multiple different ways. That even the worst of things are under his awareness. They're under his sovereignty. Look at what Hannah said herself in uh, chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. God is the one who promotes and demotes. God is the one, y'all, that everything is accountable to. The worst of the worst and the best of the best all fall under accountability to him someday. No matter what it looks like in your vantage point now, please know and believe and trust what is true in the word of God, regardless of what you feel and regardless of what you can understand. And the truth is that God is sovereign over your suffering. He's going to use it. He's in the middle of it. It isn't a mistake. Acknowledge his presence and his sovereign control. Number two, this passage also shows us that a, one, a woman of faith here, Hannah, and a woman of prayer um, affirms God's rightness in situations. So at first, we acknowledge God's sovereignty over suffering. And second of all, we affirm God's rightness in situations. Did y'all realize that righteousness, God being righteous, literally just means God is right in everything he does. That's what it means. He is right in everything he does. And if that's not enough... God's not just right in everything he does. He's good. God is right and he is good. Notice that Hannah never blames God for closing her womb. She acknowledges that he did it, but there is no ounce of blaming or anger. Not saying there isn't room for that in your own story. Definitely there is. This God is big enough to handle all of our questions and all of our fist pumps, okay? But Hannah does not display that here. She does not accuse him or blame him. In fact, she affirms his rightness in the situation. What's interesting is if you flip over a couple chapters to Samuel, her son, 
the answer to the aching prayer she prayed in this chapter says something that's very interesting about this, about God being right and God being good. And I've quoted him a lot. It's one of my favorite verses. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 3. It says um, in verse 18, the Samuel's telling the king everything and hid nothing from him. It's a whole different side story. It's really cool. Not sorry, not the king, Eli. Um, just read this whole book. First Samuel's amazing. But basically, Samuel to Eli says this. Remember, Eli is the priest. <laughs> and this is what Samuel says. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Because it is the Lord. You see, because the Lord is righteous, let him do what seems good. Because to the one who always does right... It will always be good. God is righteous. He is justice. He is goodness. And every one of his actions combines those truths. He isn't just justice. He's goodness. But he also isn't just goodness. He's justice. So we are to affirm that God is right in all of our situations and he is good write down psalm 145 17 and deuteronomy 32 4 job in chapter 1 verse 22 also indicates that he does not blame god and in fact his wife his wife is basically telling job to blame god for all the havoc that was just you know running rampant in job's life and Job really rebukes her and says, no way. I am not blaming God because I know that God is sovereign. I don't, I don't can't explain it. And frankly, I don't like it. It's not like I'm skipping up and down with boil all over my body and I've lost my livestock and everything's slipping out of my hands. I'm not just clapping, but I'm also not blaming God. I am. God is right and God is good. And therefore, what he does on my behalf is right and good. Can you say that? It's okay if you can't yet. Pray that you will be able to someday. Allow God to take you on that journey to see his rightness and goodness in every situation. Third, this passage really invites us and shows us to accept God's presence in pain and his purpose through it. There is a comfort that comes strictly from the presence of God when you are in pain. And that comfort, honestly, is even more than having your pain relieved or getting that answer. It is a, it's hard to even describe, but it is a supernatural Emmanuel comfort what does Emmanuel mean God with us and you know that in a deeper way when you're in the middle of the depths <laughs> when you're in the middle of pain and not only can we accept God's presence in our pain he is not absent but that we also can accept there is purpose for our pain, purpose through our pain. Look at 1 Peter 5.10. Establishers 
kind of overarching verse. After you have suffered a little while, suffering is a part of the plan. God who has called you, he will confirm, he will establish, he will strengthen, he will perfect. Not in that order, but he will do those things as it states in that verse after you have suffered a little while. Pain is not wasted. Tears are not unnoticed. God has purpose in all he does, and that purpose is right and good. And the more you can accept that, God, you're with me in this, and you're going to do something through this, the more peace will come into your mind that passes understanding, as it talks about in Philippians chapter 3. And even Isaiah In chapter 26, I believe, it says he will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed, fixed on him. Your mind on to keep you in peace. You don't fix your mind on how God hasn't answered your prayer. You don't fix your mind on how the enemy is stronger than God and everything's going to hell in a handbasket and you're, you're clueless and you don't have any answers and everything's awful. You fix your mind on truth. And the truth is that God is sovereign over your suffering. And the truth is that you affirm in your spirit and in your life, God is right and God is good. And the truth is you accept and believe that God's presence is with you in the middle of this tension and his purpose will prevail through it. That will give you peace beyond anything you can imagine. Read Psalm 119, verse 50. Talks about his promise prevailing and his promise giving us comfort. And you you see, obviously, Psalms was pre-Jesus. We're on the other side of the promise. We are on the other side of Emmanuel. We literally have the promise of God to be with us and in us in all things. That is comfort. Psalm 23. I will not fear Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, why? I won't fear and question, not because it doesn't hurt. Of course it does. I won't fear because you are with me. Your presence is something I'm going to accept in this pain. And it's going to give me strength. Psalm 34, 18 says that he's near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. He's close by you. He's right next to you. He's inside you. More familiar with your pain than you probably even are. Believe that he's going to work something through it. You've all heard the verse. But he can and he will. Because he is right and good. Work all things for good. As you love him. It's a truth. It's a promise. Cling to it. Number four. Um, This passage really shows us something else. It shows us to ask God for intervention. Notice that Hannah's prayer in in chapter 1, verse 11, is very specific for intervention and answer. Like I said, this is not a blanket, generic God of Israel prayer. In fact, look at the name she addresses God with in the beginning of chapter, of, of, excuse me, verse 11. It says, O Lord of hosts, 
That literally, if you're reading the NIV, is Lord Almighty. And in one of the commentaries I was reading, it, it really indicated there that the Lord of hosts is synonymous with the idea of helper of Israel personally. Not just Jehovah God, big, large, you know, reverent, awe-inspiring God, though he is that. That's not the name she uses here. She uses Lord of hosts, Lord Almighty, helper. That's what Hannah prays. Helper, look at my affliction. Take notice of me. That phrase, look upon my affliction, David uses that same phrase a lot in Psalm 119, especially in verse 153. We're studying that in our, our citywide small groups called Roots Groups throughout this year. We've been doing Psalms 119 in eight, eight chunk sections, and I was just rereading that section. And in Psalm 119, 153, David uses that exact same phrase, please look into my affliction. Look upon my affliction and rescue me, is what he says. And Hannah here says, look on the affliction of thy maidservant and remember me. Very similar. That literally means, Lord of hosts, my helper, look inside my pain. Don't just be familiar with it because you're God. Don't just be aware of what's going on. Be in tune to what's happening from the inside out of me. Take notice of me. The same phrase he uses with Sarah back in Genesis. He, he took notice of Sarah. It's a very intimate, personal, acute awareness that prompts action. That's really what this is saying. Be aware and go into action. Do something on my behalf. Hear me. Answer me. Respond to me. Hosea chapter 6, 1 through 3 is a, is a kind of a cry and a prayer of sorts that I love. It says, God will surely respond as the sun rises. That's what Hannah is banking on here. She is asking the helper to help her to to look into her pain. She is asking for intervention and deliverance very specifically and very fervently. Have you done that? There's nothing too small. There's nothing too great to invite God's intervention on. Plead with him because he pleads your cause. And what's interesting is even as Hannah is praying this, remember it says that her, her heart was talking her lips were moving, but there were no words. Well, that's very similar to what Romans 8 talks about when it says that the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, is also known as the helper, he actually can put words to our groanings when we don't have any words. In the very same way, the Spirit helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Don't you think with Hannah right here? It's kind of a picture of that, 
obviously Jesus hadn't come yet. There was no Holy Spirit, so to speak. And yet she's using phraseology like the helper. And she's groaning without words. And God hears and intervenes and goes into action for this girl of his. And he's done it for me so many times. And I'm sure he's done it for you. And if he hasn't yet, ask him specifically to intervene in your life. And he will. Let him be your helper. Let him be him. And you'll be amazed at what he can do. Write down Psalm 119, 153. It's the verse I was mentioning. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, which obviously the Spirit of God influenced Paul to write um, a permission. It's a permission to bring your request to God. Tell him everything. Ask him. The book of John says we don't have because we don't ask. But we also need to ask in Jesus' name, meaning according to his will. Ask him. Ask him according to his will to have his will and way in your life as specific as possible. And then just step back and let him do it. The last one is a scribe. A scribe, meaning just give, give to. A scribe prays and glory to God. Without Hannah's circumstances really even changing, she was not with Elkanah, she was definitely not pregnant yet, something happens in her personality in verse 18. Something happens in even her language. All of a sudden, we sense a peace about her. We sense a, a favor about her. That she's released it. That something in her says, I'm confident God, my helper, has heard me. And nothing has changed around me, but everything has changed inside of me. And I'm hungry again. And my face wears a different countenance. And my soul is in peace. Because he's heard my request. And I've released it to him. And he's going to work out what's right and what's good. And I praise him in advance for what he's about to do. I'm reading in between the lines here. But that's kind of what I sense that Hannah did. And in verse 19, it, it confirms it. It says, then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. This is before she was pregnant. She's still living with mean old Paniah. She's still being persecuted. She still has an enemy and a rival. And yet, her worship looked very different. She was full of peace. She had released her request. She was confident that God was sovereign in this particular suffering for her. She knew he was going to do right and good. She was aware of his presence with her and his purpose in this. She asked his intervention, and now she was giving him glory because she was confident he was about to move. Wow. And then in verse 20, in due time, the perfect amount of ordained time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel because she had prayed so hard for him. That's pretty powerful. So give God praise in advance 
for what you are praying for him to do. Thanking him after he does it is easy. That's a no-brainer. Everyone can do that. But a woman of faith, a man of faith, a woman of prayer, a man of prayer praises God in advance because they're confident he has heard their prayer. Regardless of how he's going to answer their prayer, they're confident he's heard it. And that's worth praising. Joy in God more than you find joy in how he fulfills your prayer. Joy in God himself more than you joy on the other side when he answers your request. Psalm 103 is an entire chapter of all of his benefits, all that he's done for us, all that he is to us. Read that that passage. It's amazing. And it will remind you of who it is you're ascribing glory to because he is so worthy. Write down Psalm 29, 1 through 3, which actually uses that word ascribe. Write down 1 Chronicles 16, 29. You see, when we have great pain, it leads us to deep prayers. And when those prayers really are full of faith and fervency, what happens is peace fills us up and out. You see, if you're still holding on to the answer to that prayer and the how of it and the when of it and you're fretting over it, you really haven't fervently, faithfully prayed like Hannah did. Because if you did that, peace would be the result. Your face will change. Your heart will no longer be sad. Your face will no longer be sad. Not because you know exactly how he's going to do it or because your circumstances have even changed yet. But because he himself has met with you. And you are confident that based on the blood of Jesus, the Father has heard you. And he is kind and he goes into action on your behalf with rightness and goodness. When you are confident God has heard your prayers and know he will intervene, believe me, you will get up off of your knees, off of your face, lighter and in in more peace. Release precedes peace. And our greatest release as believers is prayer. Deep, fervent, Hannah-type prayer. Tearful, even, at times. So the evidence of true faith-filled prayers is, is peace. And to the equal measure of the pain in your life, there should be prayer in your life. If you are in great pain, people, you better be in great prayer. Equal measure. And for that matter, equal measure of praise. Because the complexity and the depth of our pain does not diminish the character of our God. He is just as big and just as good and just as right as he was when he parted the Red Sea. So the equal measure of pain to prayer to praise in our life should all be massive. There should be no reason 
to not be praying like Hannah. There should be no reason not to be praising like Hannah. So women and men of faith experience great depths in pain, great depths in prayer, great depths in provision. They do see answers externally and internally. Men and women of faith experience great depths in peace and great depths in praise. As we conclude, 1 through 11 is Mary's song of thanksgiving that ironically looks very similar to Mary's song of thanksgiving, the Magnificent, in Luke chapter 1, 45 through 55. It'd be a really unique read for you an Old Testament and a New Testament passage of, of thanksgiving and prayer. And um, they're beautiful. And I would encourage you to read that and be reminded that he is worthy of our, of our songs of thanksgiving and our prayers of praise and our requests. He is the only one that can do anything about them. Um, the last thing I want to read is just this quote um, that I, I found from, from a commentary about kind of the purpose of, of pain in our lives. <clears throat> and it goes like this. I think it's very personal and will hopefully speak to you. God has allowed you this area of weakness and defeat where you constantly feel you are failing and you are powerless in your own strength. He has allowed it. Why has he brought you to this place? Don't you see? As long as you think you can handle it, you handle it. You will never know his power until you have released your need to him. You will never call on him until you have come to the bottom of you. When is it that you really call on him by name, personally? It's when you're most desperate. It's when every other resource has gone. God allows that to happen. It is not by mistake. It is not an oversight. We come to the end of our rope and you will quickly realize what is at the end of your rope or rather who? God. God brought you to this place, to the end of your rope in order to see him there strong and available. Pain rightly used increases our capacity for God. And the greater the capacity, the more we will be filled with him. Who doesn't want more capacity and more filling in life? That's part of God's purpose for suffering. A greater capacity to be filled. So bring on the pain. Because our heart's Soul capacity will increase and our cup will overflow.